the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Scattered like splinters in four or five years slipped away. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. David Harsani is back for part two of my interview with him about this brand new book, Euro Trash. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. I play a little Jimmy Buffett. He went to Paris for the simple reason that we all have a wonderful idea of Europe. And those of us who go as tourists to Europe see this wonderful idea of Europe and we think it's nice. And then we hear commentators and the intellectual elites of America praising Europe, especially the EU, and we think it must be pretty good. But in fact, David has done the dirty work. He has dug into the reality of Europe. How's it going over, David Harsani? Are people listening to your message about Eurotrash? Some are, I think. Some are surprised by some of the statistics that I, I present to them, and uh, others are not as open to those statistics, so it's the usual. Well, there's a myth, and, and myths are, are, are not true things that are intended to be believed. So there's this myth of the Nordic Europe, and, and we're going to go into healthcare in a second. But generally speaking, if you had to move to one place in Europe, I mean, they said, Harsani, you're going to Europe. You know, Rich Lowry says, you're going to Europe. Where would you pick? If I could afford it, I'd pick Switzerland, which is uh, a pretty good country, typically outside of European systems, not member, not not big on membership, and uh, has a you know pretty diverse population and lots of uh, guns and things like that. Um, and you know, I, I'm a, I've been an Anglophile for a long time, though uh, this was, what's going on in Australia and stuff has sort of shaken my belief in it. But uh, you know, and, and the second place would be Britain. Well, you know, both of those are not in the EU. Where where would you go in the EU? I should have said. Oh, EU. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess uh, if I was just a normal person, not a rich person or anything's fine, I guess I'd have to go to, uh, I don't know, I guess I'd have to go, I, you know, I'd go to Hungary since I speak a little bit. Okay, but then you're going to have the uh, Orban problem. Let me tell you yeah. what uh, I heard Andrew Roberts say last night. Uh, he quoted Mel Brooks, uh, the opposite of comedy is Germany. And, and I believe that that is, in fact, true generally about European. They have very little sense of amusement at their own foibles the way that americans do do you find that to be true i think that's largely the case again not the same with uh, the english for instance but I no. think that, that, yeah in general yeah for sure okay so before i dive into some specifics that we didn't cover last week i want to talk about the fact that you're very nice to your editors and this is very rare for a columnist to that you think rich lowry and the gang at national review so are Bamari. Adam Brodsky at the New York Post, Seth Mandel at the Examiner, Simone Skyhouse and Alessandro Caruso at Creator Syndicate. You know, I hate editors. What's wrong? How did you draw all the good editors? You have to be nice to them, even if you hate them, and then they'll be nicer to you. 
So you thank them in the acknowledgments of your books. Now, I, okay. I like my editors. I've been very lucky. Okay, that that's actually kind of unusual. Let's get down to it. And I'm going to go to the grim stuff first. I'm going to talk about euthanasia. Nobody believed me when I talked about the Groningen Protocol years ago. David, you've got the receipts. Would you explain what is happening on euthanasia's front, not only to old and frail people, but to children and others who are are just lining up to be killed? Well, there's a it's a it's a growing culture in Europe where where there are not just it, it, it's been happening for a long time quietly it, with children, with with other with, with athletes, sometimes with people who have diseases that are listen, it's, it's a complex, thorny moral issue. I get it. Um, but now you have politicians in places like Belgium and elsewhere making open arguments that anyone, anyone for any reason, even because they are suffering in some way psychologically, I, I don't mean, you know, depression, things like that should be able to just end their lives. Uh, and they want the government not just to endorse such things, but to let and help them do it. And they do it on, on occasion. Um, it's deeply immoral and hard to read about. And, you know, it, 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 I think at least it, it again goes to the question of faith that we were talking about last week. I think people have lost their moral moorings. I'm not saying that most people are like this. I don't want to generalize about Europe, but it's definitely a growing movement. Well, I do link it to the fact that, as you document in the book, religious belief in Europe has bottomed out. It's it's cratered. It's the churches are empty. The mosques are full. But the the Islamic people are not lining up to end their lives. It's people without any faith at all. And this began probably 20 years ago. Groningen, I think, is probably 10 years now. If we extrapolate out another 20 years, what percentage of Europeans are going to line up to have their lives ended voluntarily? I don't, I don't know, but it's it's been a growing there's been growing acceptance of that sort of thinking for a long time. So for like you said, probably ten twenty years, even though who knows maybe it even goes back farther. But uh, I mean, think think about how the the Europeans talk about eradicating Down syndrome or something like that. It is not you know it's it's just nefarious, I think, and and it's spoken about by politicians, by pundits there in, in ways that would, would blow people's minds here and uh, should blow people's minds here. So I don't know, maybe there'll be a, you know, maybe there'll be a pushback and religion will find its way back into the lives of Europeans. I don't know what the future holds. I, I don't know so, but but when you quote, and this is on page 228, and I'm holding up the book. In ancient Sparta, newborn babies would first be examined by elders, and if they weren't up to snuff without blemish, they would be left in the wilderness with the animals. The Romans did the same thing. So in many respects, Europe is reverting to the norm of the tribal culture that from which they sprang. And Athens was an enlightened place, but this is despotic, and what's really bad about it is it's fairly easy to accomplish if you're in a serious mental illness. I mean, if you're in a state of depression, as you document, Europe welcomes you into a clinic and says, what can we do to help you dispatch yourself? I, I, I actually am astonished that this doesn't get more attention, David, and I compliment you for digging into it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but something like we're talking about dozens of newborn babies who were born with some sort of abnormality, let's say, or whatever the right word is, we're, we're, we're given lethal injections, I think, in, I forget which country it was. I think the Dutch did it. it it's the Dutch. You know, over, yeah. yeah, over a five, six-year span or whatever it was. I mean, it's horrifying to read about, but it happens quite often, and that's just what we know about. It's not as if every doctor reports it to the government. It's difficult to um, 
to know what the real numbers are. In addition to that very obvious manifestation of a loss of faith in the future, we also have what you refer to as the Malthusians. And they were all gathered in Glasgow, right? They all went to Glasgow in the last couple of weeks. Talk to us about the Malthusian moment that is recur- it recurs every 100 years in Europe. I think it actually it's sort of a, a, a recurring cycle of gloom. But what is their Malthusian mood? It's funny that you mentioned faith again. You know, this is their apocalyptic moment in their faith, and they talk about it every few years. It comes up, and they pretend there's going to be some apocalypse. Um, the Malthusians, the problem with the Malthusians that ties into children and things like that is that many more Europeans, though, again, we're on the same, we're trending the same way. Many European women won't have kids because they think it's bad for the earth and bad for their communities. And that's the, you know, the opposite, of course, is true, and everyone who lives near children knows it, it to be true. Um, and it, of course, lowers, it makes life more difficult for them in many ways because they've made energy so expensive. We're going to get a taste of that coming soon. Um, so that doesn't help their economy, doesn't help them <clears throat> thrive in other ways that are, are good for, for families and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, wide, I have polls in the book, widespread numbers of Europeans believe they shouldn't have children. And that's a, it's, it's heartbreaking, actually, when you think about it. I mean, the only people having children in Europe right now are, uh, immigrant families, and uh, so it's changing the entire uh, demographics of the, of the continent. We're going to talk about that in the next segment, about the Islamization of Europe. But on page 215, the most damning sentence in a damning book, A Eurotrash by David Arsani, Europeans don't trust their society with the future. And judging from their ugly past, perhaps there is reason for them to be skeptical. Whatever the case, low fertility is a manifestation of many of the other problems discussed in this book. Not believing in the future I guess is rational then not to want children. Uh, but if you if you don't believe in the future, you haven't been paying attention. Uh, and, and I'm not a big Steven Pinker uh, guy. I don't believe he's got it right. He downplays problems and he upplays progress. But you have to be blind not to see what's going on around us. Yeah, I mean, my I upplay progress, too. I think that we're living in the wealthiest, freest place right now on Earth here. And same could be had in Europe. But I would say this, my dad was born in 1942 in Hungary during World War II, and he's Jewish, right? So, like, people were having kids, you know, it, it, you know, when you didn't expect them to have children, I guess. And it's an important part of, you know, perpetuating the future and, and uh, the idea that we shouldn't do that because, uh, you know, there's a, a slight warming going on is, is uh, self-destruction and self-destructive. Is there any... Uh indicia of happiness is there any way to measure happy arthur brooks talks about it all the time and about polls etc but is there any way to distinguish between european levels of happiness and american levels of happiness i don't think so i don't think it's quantifiable in the sense that uh you know if you ask a scandinavian if they're happy they're probably going to tell you yes no matter what's going on um the finish, <laughs> <might> have, yeah <laughs> yeah to finish uh love their government, and uh, no matter who's in charge, 91% will always say they like it there. So what's the joke? Out of, so the Finnish person who is an introvert looks at his own feet, the extrovert looks at your feet. That's the kind of people I, there. I was about and, to quote the same thing. I was about to yeah. quote the same thing because your, your riff on the Nordic introversion and shyness was very, very funny. It's also it's my experience in Sweden and in Norway and in in Finland. Now, I, I want to talk, though, about the southern part of, of Europe, Italy and Spain, which we normally associate with 
you know, life with with uh, uh, vibrancy and a great embrace of family and food and festivity and ritual. It ain't so. They have uh, the. I call them formerly Catholic countries have the lowest, uh, you know, they have the oldest or some of the oldest countries in Europe, Italy, uh, Spain. They don't have a lot of children. Um, Their societies have a big problem, which is why they're bringing in again. I think we're going to talk about next, but they're bringing in tons of immigrants to make up uh, that prop, you know, to to fill that hole and to have their economies continue to grow. And that's a, a huge problem because, again, and we'll talk about this, they don't assimilate the new people. So it's it's just a problem that feeds itself, and that's what's going on in Italy, Spain, in Portugal, places like that. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about what the new immigrant community means, what the great immigration of the last 10 years mean, inward bound into Europe. And we will then, in segment three, which is going to be off air, but in the podcast today, we're going to talk about Poland, because Poland is the exception to every rule. And we're going to talk about why. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with David Harsani. Go and get his book, Eurotrash. I have uh, tweeted out the link. You'll find it eye-opening. You'll find it alarming. And you also find it the complete uh, response to people who are saying, go Europe, go EU. Hewitt, new Quinnipiac poll is breaking news. The approval rate of President Biden is down to 36 percent in the new Quinnipiac. Did I get that right, General? He's about 36 or 38 percent? 36. It was 37 three weeks ago. It's, he's down. To, he's now down to 36 in Quinnipiac. 36. My guest is David Harsani from National Review and the author of this brand new wonderful book, Eurotrash. Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. He's not calling Europeans trash. He's just saying that their ideas end up with a trashy society. Uh, David, what do you make of Joe Biden's precipitous decline in in popularity? Is he going European and therefore his numbers are going to plummet because Americans just don't buy this stuff? That'd be great for my book. Uh, I do think he is going European in some ways. The, the expansion of the welfare state that he wants it, and the growth of the bureaucracy that would go along that is very European. But I just think he's also incompetent and has uh, generally mishandled everything he's done. So I think that that has more to do with it. There's a little I don't want to be ageist, but there's also a frailty issue here about the capacity to govern that I think is at work in people's minds. Let me go to Chapter 10. The future must not belong to those who slander the prophet. It begins with a Salman Rushdie quote that I want to get correct. Two things form the bedrock of any open society, freedom of expression and the rule of law. If you don't have those things, you don't have a free country. Well, I haven't got those things in continental Europe. Uh, Germans, I didn't know this, so I read it. Germans can be arrested for insulting someone in public. You know what that would do to my business, David? <laughs> yeah, and in, in, in places like Munich, the local police have gone to people's houses, arrested them for saying things online that were, you know, admittedly very ugly. But still, I, I just can't imagine... Well, first of all, you know, it's impossible to enforce that sort of thing consistently. So you would just have abuse of power. And, and at the same time that they are cracking down on free expression, we have uh, the importation into Europe of a vast wave of refugees, many of whom are just seeking safety. They are running away from tyrannical, barbaric regimes like Syria but they're landing in countries that welcome them, like Germany, with open arms, perhaps upon very little reflection. And what has been the judgment after three years, David, on whether or not these new immigrants will assimilate? Well, they, they haven't assimilated in, in the most places in, in, in countries that um, allowed, you know, even before that started allowing immigrants 
who have no tradition in that sort of thing, like Sweden, let's say, or even, you know, Eastern European countries or Central European countries like Hungary, um, which stopped allowing them in. But, uh, I mean, you don't, you, in Germany, you have, you have big problems and you have problems dating back to the 50s. You have Turkish immigrants, generational poverty and high unemployment who simply don't assimilate. The, the Europeans cannot assimilate anyone very well. Um, which always makes me laugh when we hear here how intolerant we are and how terrible we are. And then you look outside and you have people living together from all over the world that would be killing each other in other situations. So uh, Europe, they still do. You have, in, you know, in France, occasionally the government has to deploy the army to, to make sure that Jews aren't being uh, killed and attacked in, in, in the suburbs and things like that. So it's, I'm, it's a big I'm going to come to the anti-Semitism in a moment, but I wanted to bring up first what you just alluded to. America does a very good job of this. And I'm not very worried about even southern border uh, open immigration for a season because we're very good at this, especially among uh, people coming from Central and South America. But even in Vietnamese uh, situation, I when I lived in Orange County in Westminster and Garden Grove, these are vibrant Vietnamese American communities with the most extraordinary uh, wonderful, close-knit families, but also extraordinary integration into the community mm-hmm. at large. Little Kabul outside of San Francisco. If you go to Little uh, Somalia in in the Twin Cities and in Portland, Maine, these are not difficult to assimilate communities. Sometimes people, bigots, will say they are, but they're not, David. It goes very well in the United States. What do we do that the Europeans don't do? <laughs> Well, you, you hear that trope about diversity is our strength, but it's really more about having a bunch of diverse people accept the same set of ideals to live under. It doesn't mean they have to lose their culture, but it does mean they have to give up a little something and embrace a sort of liberal idealism about living with others freely. And I think that we do that well. But, you know, to be fair to Europeans, we're, you know, we were built on this idea, basically. We had immigrants right off the bat, whereas Europe, you know, you have thousand-year-old cultures with their own very defined ethnic ideas and, and, and religions and things like that. So it's much more difficult for them to do it, I think. And also there's smaller countries. I'm Again, I am not a big Orban fan, but that country, uh, Hungary has, what, 9 million people maybe. And to allow hundreds of thousands of newcomers at the same time is, is going to be problematic for them to assimilate that many people. So it's made perhaps somewhat understandable. Last minute, where is your book doing best? And then we're going to come back. And David will be my guest on the interview with Hugh Hewitt, which will uh, continue right after this. And we'll we'll compress everything into part two of this, because I really do want people to get Eurotrash. We're talking about faith and we'll talk about Poland off air. But but what is what's the long term view, in your opinion, of Europe? What's going to be there in 50 years? Uh, I don't know. I think it'll be a more increasingly insipid place, but I think increasing problems with Islamic, uh, unassimilated Islamic uh, 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 population in places like France will only grow. And that uh, pushes, you know, that sparks ethno-nationalistic pushback, which is ugly itself. And then you have very ugly political situations. I I actually think it's going to be uh, majority Muslim countries within two generations. I just I don't know how demographics work other than geometrically. David Arsani will be back with me on the interview with Hugh Hewitt. His new book is Euro Trash. Go and get it at Amazon.com. Give it to your, especially your liberal friends who say, if only we could be like the Nordic countries. What nonsense. I'll be right back with David on the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us. Back now with David Arsani on the interview with Hugh Hewitt, the podcast, which compiles all the segments that I've done with David into two places over at the interview with Hugh Hewitt. David, let's talk about Poland. I've only been fortunate enough to be to Poland twice. On both times, I was extraordinarily impressed with the people and the welcome. 
but it remains a very Catholic country. Is that their secret to success? Uh, I think so. I think that it's, uh, you know, as I noted, I think last time we spoke, you know, faith is not just about being a religious person, which is, of course, important for moral reasons, etc. But it also allows it also makes you more patriotic, usually, and it gives you a better sense of, of yourself and, and your country and where you fit in and all those kinds of things. So I think the Polish, which are, you know, the Polish are one of the most religious populations, maybe the most in Europe. I'm not exactly sure about that, uh, are doing well. Um, and also asserting their independence in ways that many other countries aren't and can't. They're also putting up a fight against Belarus, which is attempting to uh, play Putin's puppet and allow uh, an unassimilated group of people fleeing tyranny in the Middle East to cross over the border, and the Poles are pushing back. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing to assert control of your own borders, I think. Yes. And, uh, I mean, that's exactly what Hungary did, and that's why everyone in Europe got mad at them. They're not mad about Orban because he's illiberal, which he is in some ways, because they're a liberal too, in my opinion, <laughs> you know, Germany and France. They're mad at them for because they're socially conservative in the way they use the liberalism and that they don't want immigration. Yeah, Orban is kind of a fraud. I don't believe the man is religious, and I believe he's deeply corrupt, but he is playing off of the traditional uh, religious uh, tune that most Europeans hear. I mentioned well, who, in the last that, segment. Or- Orban, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. I, agree. I think he's deeply corrupt, and uh, and we shouldn't we shouldn't close our eyes to the fact that we do well, not Hungary want to be. Has, in- Hungary has Hungary has ten thousand. The, the average person in Hungary's per capita income is ten thousand dollars lower than the person in Mississippi. So when people go there, these conservatives, and sit at the you know at the Danube, looking over the river in a cafe, that's not how Hungarians actually are living their lives, and they're I think uh, misleading Americans and you know conservatives in some ways. One hundred percent. Now, I want to talk about anti-Semitism. In the United States, we are rightly shocked when Tree of Life Synagogue is attacked by a serial killer. It has happened in L.A. when I lived in L.A. It happens all over the United States. We are not without, uh, we're in a glass house in the United States. But boy, we can throw stones at anti-Semitism in Europe because it's off the charts there and it's historically rooted. And now it's spiraling, David. How bad is it? I think it's worse than people understand. And me to Uh-oh. comprehend what we lost you there for a second you said it was worse than people understand yeah i think so and and uh, it's hard for me as a jew to comprehend how anyone any jewish person still remains in europe itself especially in nations like france where not only do you have the traditional anti-semitic attitudes but you have the incoming uh islamic popular muslim population that is deeply anti-semitic and it's, it's you know people get mad when i say this it's, just a fact. All polling shows that that, that, that Muslims in Europe are deeply anti-Semitic. And uh, oftentimes it manifests in violence, especially in places like France and Germany. And I fear for the future of the Jewish communities there. I think they've got to leave. I mean, I really do think they've got to leave. They've got to go to Israel or come to the United States because they're not safe. Yeah, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Now, I want to hold up to you. We've, we've kept the United Kingdom out of this because they've had the great common good sense to get the hell out of the European Union. Most of American elite opinion was with most of city opinion, which was, oh, we can't leave the European Union. That would be horrible. In fact, they left. Has it been a good thing or a bad thing for Great Britain that they left? I think it's a good thing in the long term. I'm not sure it's changed much in the short term, but... Uh... They were always a tough fit for the European Union. You know, I, in my book, I talk about Winston Churchill 
had this idea of a super European state, but even he did not include Britain in that state. And they, the French didn't want them there because the British were a little bit too, uh, I would say, free market oriented for them uh, initially. And so it was always sort of a tight, they didn't take on the currency. I think it's always a kind of a bad fit. And, you know, Britain, as I mentioned before, being my, one of my favorite European countries, I, I'm happy about that. After our first conversation, one of my friends from the Trump era, senior national security official, said he didn't get to Germany. Uh, NATO was created to keep America in, Germany down, and the Russians out. Now Germany is controlling the continent, and Germany is acting like Germany again. They're running everything. In fact, they've, they've obtained everything that the Reich wanted uh, without firing a shot. They wanted to control the entire continent. They control the entire continent. Yeah, in my book, I call them the gentle Reich. I think they're um, they're ruling in a different way, but ruling. And the NATO, to me, is a relic, frankly, of, of the Cold War. I just don't think it makes sense in the way it's formulated, right? You know, uh, constructed right now. Especially since Germany doesn't do its part to uh, to pay in. Like everyone was yelling at Trump when he would bring this up, but even Obama had 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 complaints to the Germans about this. Why? Who are we defending them from if they're building pipelines to Russia to get their gas? Well, we, you know close ours down coming from Canada. Doesn't, and none of that makes any sense to me. So, but I mean, obviously, whenever you bring this up, the, the entire, you know, all of DC gets nervous. So I don't know that anything's going to change. Well, they don't know what's, what is to replace it. They don't really have a construct. And so they're afraid of the unknown. And the unknown is simply going to be uh, what we've forged in the Pacific, I think, between Japan, the United States, Australia, and the UK, and soon India, which is a new NATO for a new region, and Russia is going to be Russia, and they better not go into Poland or the, the article will be invoked. But they're going to get Ukraine. Do you think they're going to get Ukraine, David? I don't think anyone's going to go to war to stop them. So, yes, in the long run, I think they will. I do, too. Now, I want to close with this. Churchill College panel discusses the racial consequences of Winston Churchill. Cambridge University Churchill College had a panel discussion on the racism of Churchill. Um Andrew Roberts brought this to my attention, that wokeism has infiltrated the United Kingdom to such an extent that it's not just statues in Oxford. It's everywhere and at all times. Are you aware that UK is is on the same precipice that the United States is in terms of intemperate uh, intolerance towards history? Um, I, I'm not an expert, meaning in the sense of how deeply it's ingrained in, in what's going on there. But I do know that England is worse than most uh, European nations about wokeism. I think that actually France does a better job, for instance, than we do in in in, in pushing back against that sort of thing. But uh, you don't see that as much in Britain. So I see them, you know, toppling Nelson statues and stuff. So I assume they were on the same trajectory as we were when it comes to wokeism. And so, but but Europe having traditionally been, and especially the United Kingdom, the gateway to the world. Now, it was a colonial power, but it was the gateway to the world. It accepted everyone. They had very low levels of resistance to intermarriage, all of that sort of thing. On on what pillar does it, it, they don't have the history of slavery that we do, that we have to work through. To what do you attribute their wokeism in, in Europe? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they do. I mean, obviously, they do have a history with slavery, but uh, yeah, it's not like we had here and certainly didn't go on as long. So I'm not exactly sure why. I think, you know, honestly, this is just I'm just, just throwing this out there. But I think, again, it has to do with faith. I mean, I think people are looking for, for a reason, you know, for, for a movement, for, for something to believe in, uh, for something that makes them feel more morally uh, superior to others, perhaps. And uh, they find it in this kind of uh, this kind of uh, 
self-hatred for some reason that we see here of, the, of their nation. So uh, I, I don't know the real root reasons for it, but it, it happens in, Anglo, Anglo, in the Anglosphere more than it does in, in any other place. Let's close by where we began uh, a week ago. The United States Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the uh, apple of gold surrounded by the frame of silver, Lincoln borrowing from Proverbs, is very short. You can read the Declaration of the Constitution in about a half an hour if you're pushing on. It may not even take that long. The founding documents of the European Union, you collected them all. You, you noted them. At, at, they're, they're an extraordinary number and density. That's not really a free society by definition if you cannot know the laws under which you are being governed and you have no participation in their passage. Is it fair to say that Europe is no longer free? I don't think it's free. I mean, again, they're not it's not like a Stalinist tyranny or anything like that, but they're not really free because the bureaucracies run the run the nations. And that, as I mentioned last week, is my biggest fear. Um, here, you know, you have giant bureaucracies and they just run your life and there's really nothing you can do to fight them. The difference, of course, is that in Europe, most people don't care and don't want to fight them. And here we do. But uh, I don't think that they're free. If you're not free to, to, to in London, for instance, to go out into a park and then preach the Bible because uh, you might offend someone, that's not a free place. Uh, and I think that uh, the difference here would be that most people would care, or at least I hope. And there most people don't. Well, the Alliance Defending Freedom exists here in order to fight back on that front, and mm -hmm. they're being very successful. But I'm not sure that the European court uh, system and the international court system, the Great Britain system, is detaching itself. I don't think it's ever going to be particularly friendly towards faith. It's just not built on that premise that faith is integral. And Benedict warned about that. And I also think he was kind of resigned to it. Um, David, uh, in terms of what your next project is. You're going to stay focused on Europe. Or you're going to turn your attention back to the United States. <laughs> I just quickly want to say that you made a great point. There are no organizations there. There is no big pro-life movement. There is no movement for the First Amendment. So there, that's why this is allowed to just happen. And there's really very little pushback. Um, I'm not sure what my next project is. You know, you write a book and you know this, you know, you're kind of immersed in it so deeply for, a, you know, two years at least. So I, I haven't really thought about what's next. I'm just going to write about politics and I expect our next election is going to be quite interesting. So uh, I'll just concentrate on that, I think. Well, I, I hope you draw out that AOC and her gang are just European imports. So they may, they may not have lived there a week. They're just European imports. And if they bring, if they gain control of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party gains control of the United States, this is the future. That dire is that fair? Yeah, no, it's fair. And every time these you know, moderates are going to lose because of them, and they just get stronger in the Democratic Party because there's fewer moderates to push back, and they hardly push back now. So I and think that, that, that is, uh, that's not good for them as the future goes. That's not good for us. We needed actually two free parties yeah. just with different, uh, different priorities and different approaches to maybe organization of labor, but not to the administrative state. David Arsani, thanks for spending so much time with me. Euro Trash, available in bookstores now at Amazon.com. Go and get it. Enjoy it. And David, come back early and often. I really appreciated the time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. 
You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.